Overlooking his kingdom. He's like, okay, this is a good view. I, I know. Like, oh. I'm just gonna chill like this. I wonder how long he's gonna be able to maintain that position because <laughs> that is uh, pretty impressive. <laughs> he really looks like a boss. I know. He's like, that's I that's so boss level. Uh, you can relax. <laughs> Truffle. Like, you can relax. If, I want to see if he can keep that position for two hours. For the whole podcast. Exactly. I will be super impressed as Mocha just sniffs his butt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty cute. That's pretty cute. Cute. Mocha, stay. Good pose, Mocha. Mama. That's beautiful. There we go. Oh, good girl. It's okay. Stay. Truffle looks a little bit uncomfortable. I know. It's like, it's like wait, uh, wait. I thought this was my spot. What's going on? Mocha, sit. Mocha, get down. Okay. Oh. Good she went See? there for a photo. I know. That was impressive. That was a nice pose. Oh, that was a good pose. Ah. All right, here we go. So I will give you a little bit of an introduction and then we'll we'll just go from there. Okay. Okay, here we go. Good afternoon. And we warmly welcome you all back to another episode of Firelight Chats, where we broadcast the most super natural and compelling voices and stories from our Space Lab studio here in Da'an, Taipei. Taiwan. 2024 is officially upon us, and here we are in the first month of this new year with our 56th episode, or the very first episode of the third season of Firelight Chats. This opening month of January is named after Janus, the Roman god of beginnings, transitions, dualities, doorways, passages, and endings, and is thus usually depicted as having two faces, one looking backward and the other looking forward. So, in honor of this nominal spirit that continues to happily haunt our Western calendars like a heroic character from a good game, we hope y'all were able to say goodbye and good riddance to 2023. Do a hard reset in solemn reflection and relative peace and ring in with good vibes and a spectacle of positive vibrations what will soon blossom like fireworks into according to the Chinese zodiac the auspicious and powerful year of the dragon. From the dungeons of our past to the dragons of our future from role-playing to playing video games from arcades and old-school cassette consoles to high-fidelity resolutions. From binary bits to digital bytes to insatiable Pac-Man. From Atari to the genesis of God, mode, graphics, origin stories, mythical characters, game boys, and girls that are equally game. Us and we. Switching to Nintendo and stations for all colors of the rainbow to play. From PC to Web3, 
blockchain scaffolding into a purring metaverse. Crypto kitties to esports top shots to NF twitching apes and a menagerie of other exotic animals crossing over into another liminal universe. Among all these things, constant change is the only thing that has remained reliably consistent. And with every game over, we can always eventually choose to press start on a whole new adventure and hopefully level up into yet another final fantasy of our ever-shifting collective virtual reality. Ashes to ashes and rising from this dust like a fallen angel of slaughter. Our guest for today's episode is a powerhouse of a woman who is an investor, advisor, and seasoned business executive at some of the most impactful video game tech and blockchain slash web3 companies of the world, including Amazon and their cloud gaming platform Luna, the legendary Riot Games, and the ever dapper Dapper Labs. So without further ado, let us light up the on-air sign, press play, boot up our hard drives full of memory, preloaded with algorithms of disruptive nostalgia, and freestyle chat, create, connect, and communicate about any and all of these things for this latest episode of Firelight Chats. Boca and I, sitting once again here by the fireside in our Space Lab studio, eager and fully game to welcome our champion guest in a legendary league of her own, the one and only Miss Fan Shen. Hello, hello. So happy to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. And let's not forget today, other than Mocha, we also have a, you know, a guest. We do have a special guest. A special guest. His name is Truffle. Truffle in the house. Truffle in the house. He is my three and a half years old French bulldog who just befriend with Mocha. I think they're going to be soulmate for life. After exactly. This encounter. They have become soulmates for life. They have entered into another realm <laughs> and we are already planning some special things coming up. Yes. In the yes, future. Yes. Co combination of romantic and business interests involved. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Some huge drops, limited edition collections, NFT. We're going to take over the blockchain world. We're probably going to shut down Ethereum. <laughs> oh my goodness. I don't know if the world can handle. Yeah. We haven't signed any NDA with the audience, but we might be thinking of like a mocha chain or something. Exactly. <laughs> so a tuned. mocha truffle chain. <laughs> The mocha chain in a truffle, truffle coin. There you go. There you go. It is coming. So thank you very much, Truffle, for joining us. Truffle is overlooking his kingdom over there uh, on what used to be Mocha's bed, but Truffle has taken Truff over. So. Truffle's bed. <laughs> exactly. But it's all good. They share everything now. So thank you very much, Fan, for coming in here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. It's my pleasure. It's amazing. What is that noise? Was that... <laughs> So we just want to uh, warn the audience that there may be uh, strange breaks and funny noises coming from some barking in the background, but that, that's just all friendly. Exactly. Yeah. So we are very lucky. We finished off the end of the year with an amazing guest, another uh, Taiwanese Canadian, actually CEO of Food Panda and a 
awesome bubble tea shop called Odd One Out in Dongchu. And now we are kicking off the new year with a equally powerful businesswoman, a gaming expert, executive, a woman of so many different adjectives and nouns and other things. So thank you. That's too kind. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, let's just jump into it. What is the beginning of this story, this epic game of Fan Shen? Where does this game start? So I grew up in Taiwan and I studied NCCU, majoring in economics. Zhengda. Zhengda, yes. And both of my parents are Taiwanese, so we're very you know, a loving, you know, typical, well, not typical, but loving Taiwanese family. And after I graduated from NCCU, my first professional career uh, is was a trader. So I trade stocks, bond, and that's where I learned about all the trading technique, you know, how to invest, how to accumulate wealth, which is great. And then after Lehman Brothers, I went to New York at Columbia University getting my MBA degree. After the MBA degree, that's when I started to accumulate a rich amount of working experiences globally and truly become global professional, working in different regions and different culture. So out of MBA, my first job was at Boston Consulting Group. Mm. So I was traveling around China, Hong Kong, Singapore, advising Fortune 500 company. And that was really fun. You know, I get to work with a lot of C-level executive, kind of, you know, view things from a very, very high level strategic macro viewpoint. And then later on, I got the opportunity somehow in LA to work at Riot Games, developer of League of Legends. And getting a job at Riot Games was like a dream come true. Because, you know, like what we talked about earlier, I am like a lifelong gamer. Mm. I love video game. I have all the console from Nintendo, Sega, PlayStation, Xbox. You name it. You name it. Game Boy even. Game Boy, PS <laughs> Vista, we talked about it last time. Right. Yeah, basically joining Riot was like a dream come true for me. And at Riot, I have different exciting roles. I manage their Southeast Asia gaming publishing business. I also did North American region strategy. <laughs> Truffle, should I let you come up? Maybe you'll let Yeah, maybe. Truffle can hang out with you. I will hold Mocha here. Little background ambiance. Okay. Truffle's voice. You're stuck here. Yes. Okay, there we go. You two doggies behave yourselves. So joining Riot was a dream come true moment for me due to my passion for video game. Mm. And at Riot, I had a few different exciting roles. I did Southeast Asia publishing, lead the Southeast Asia game publishing. Also did North American strategy, you know, figuring out how to grow League of Legends revenue in North America, U.S. and Canada included. And I also led the China eSports strategy back in the days, working very closely with Tencent to build the whole eSports franchise system in China. That was a really fun time, worked with a lot of eSports team owners, negotiate contract with them, or help them to build local stadiums. And then I also did business development for Riot's mobile game, which is called League of Legends Wild Rift. Mm. Back then when I was there, we didn't have a public name yet. So we have a code called uh, Lightspeed or something. That was a code name for the, the mobile It's like Project Lightspeed. LR, yes. Yeah, that was a lot of fun time. I learned a lot. I would say Riot was a period of time where I had the most a meaningful culture shock in the mm. U.S., because right, I lived in the U.S. 
obviously before, even during college time, you know, for a certain semester, but living and working in a fully very U.S. environment, American environment, and managing a completely U.S. team was a very different, unique, and at the beginning, shocking period for me. And I'm glad that I actually went through that period, made a lot of mistakes, learned a lot, and pivoted. And after riot time, I would say it was really after that period that I finally, you know, get a hold of what is it like to really manage different types of employees, you know, who are very, very American, very, very Asian, you know, very, very European, and how do we work together? So I grew a lot out of that experience in managing a really, truly global team. Yeah, because when you were at Lehman Brothers, that was actually based in Taipei. Yes, that was actually based in Taipei, even though my Lehman Brothers colleagues were mostly expat, either graduated the U.S. moved back to Taiwan or you know, like, like you, ABC, ABC Taiwanese. Taiwanese, my U.S. counterpart, but it's still different. It was particularly challenging to be a manager at Riot because mm. Riot has a very, I would say, free culture. Video game is partly a creative industry. It's very disruptive. Disruptive, <laughs> it's creative. You have a lot of very exotic personality. It's very different from managing people from BCG. From Lehman. From, Lehman, from equities and from trading equity, and finance. Right? And consultant, because consultant and banking people, they're somehow homogeneous, right? Everyone right. had a degree. Most people have an MBA. They're very... Uh, professional, wearing suits. Wearing suits, professional, very polished, professionally, right? Speak eloquently. Right. Video game, you work with people. Also speaking eloquently, but different languages. Different languages, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And also brilliant. Yeah, they're right. smart and brilliant. They just express themselves differently. You know, mm-hmm. I manage people who came to work with a whole hair, you know, dye purple. Right. Piercings everywhere. Piercing everywhere. Tattoos. Tattoos. You know, from toe to like arm everywhere. It's California, so smoking something. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Very relaxed, right? Right. So I just really had to learn how to manage and work with a wide spectrum of people. And not to mention that even though I need to manage a very, very US or global team, I also need to work with Tencent, right? Which is all mm. very traditional Chinese executive who speak Mandarin only. Right. right. Basically, I have to play the role of oh, switching my cultural identity, you know, and adapting my method depending on which counterpart right. that I was working with, which back then it was a lot of culture shock. It was exhausting at that point. But now that I think of it, I think it was a very pivotal moment in my career that molded me into a very, I would say, open minded, observant and flexible leader mm. which i think it's one of the most important trade right now in this increasingly integrated economy because i think right now things have changed a lot right and then a lot of businesses a lot of company they basically serve global audience right mm-hmm. fewer and fewer companies that only target one single small market exactly. one culture right right so that was a pivotal change for me my riot experience and then after Riot, I moved to Seattle for Amazon. I led their APAC BT effort for Amazon Luna, which is a cloud gaming platform. Mm. That was also a very critical period. At that time, during that period, I consider myself already fully immersed into the U.S. working culture. I have no problem 
working and managing a global or a U.S. team. Right? So I think that period of time is really for me to learn about how Amazon operates their business, how you know a world-leading, a world-class company basically start you know an idea from scratch for six pager. Yeah. Mm. Amazon call it six pager. Basically, it's a word document. You can only write maximum six page of content, and within that six page, you have to describe in detail what is the idea, what is the product that you want to start, and what are the customer needs that you're serving. So I witnessed firsthand how Amazon basically incubate or grow any idea from a six pager. To a twenty people business, fifty people business, a thousand people business, and gradually grow it to one billion. Or sometimes mm. it fails. Sometimes right. it grew to two million, and then they kill it in three to five years. The experience, the things that I observe at Amazon, it's really refreshing. It's very very different from BCG, Lehman Brothers, or Riot. Riot, it's a creative industry. Right. You have to deal with a lot of creative people, and there's no really like a playbook, or no one can tell you how to make a successful video game because、mm. it's just like it's a little bit like movie, right? It's a hit and miss. Exactly. People in video game industry we talk about it all the time. The hit rate of making a blockbuster video game is lower than TV and movie. Okay. So, but Amazon is in a completely different spectrum. Everything has a playbook. Everything has a process. Amazon's so good at you know, picking an idea and then debate it, and then do all the R and D deeply, all the R and D,、yeah. and then operationalize it.、Right. Amazon can always, always operationalize a business idea better than other people because they have this whole set of process. Like you have to write a six pager, and you have to tell me the resources that you need. You have to tell me the risk, and this is the approval process, and it goes very fast.、Hmm. When I talk about, it, you feel like, oh wow, it's like very bureaucratical, a lot of processes, and a lot of approval level. But actually, Amazon can do it all those in a month. Right, as long as you do the work in those six pages. Exactly. Then, then everything is a boom, boom, boom. Okay, there's a six pager. This is the process. Let's run with it. And then once、wow. you kick out the business, you know there'll be weekly review of the business, monthly review of the business, quarterly review. We call it WBR, MBR, QBR. Right, to review the business, solve problems, solve challenges. Right? Do you need more money? Do you need more resources? Is it working? Is it not working?、Mm. Basically, it was eye-opening for me to see for a company like Amazon at that scale to run so fast to incubate new ideas and then keep innovating. And that's why Amazon I still consider as one of the most successful tech company. If you look at the business, you can't really categorize Amazon in any kind of set segment. I know it's not books anymore. It's not just books anymore. It's not just books. It's not just e-commerce. It also runs Amazon Fresh, right? Which is like a retail store that sells grocery product. Right.、They、also have Whole Food. Yeah. Also have Prime Video.、Mm -hmm. <laughs> a bunch of Prime products. Wasn't Prime product. And they also have AWS, and they also,、right. you know, autonomous cars. You can't really put Amazon in one bucket and say, okay, this is they do this, right? For example, Facebook, they do social media. Right. They are trying to get it into VR. Right. The metaverse. The metaverse. Apple, they do hardware, and everything they do, you know, the ecosystem is to boost their hardware sales.、Mm -hmm. But Amazon just cannot. I do. I don't know how to label them,、uh, and I think it's such a fascinating. Experience in my career to witness that, and also to learn firsthand, just basically how to build things from scratch with speed and structure. 
Mm, and okay. it's hard to do that. It's hard to build things with speed and structure. Exactly. You can. Most people usually do just choose of one of them. Yeah, you choose one. Right? <laughs> right. Go with speed, no structure. Go with structure, no speed. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. So this was Seattle. So you moved from Los Angeles to Seattle. Seattle. This transition. Okay. Yes. Yes. I mean, from New York. Yes. From Taipei. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so at that time when I was at Amazon, I already lived in. Many many different cities.、Mm-hmm. Obviously, Taipei. That's where I grew up, and then New York, right? And then Hong Kong, which is where BCG was. I was based there. Okay. A consultant. Even you have a base, you don't really live there. I was based in Hong Kong, but I spent most of the time in Shanghai, Beijing, and Shenzhen. So the three city, I travel every week between the three city. I only go back to Hong Kong on weekend for a day to sleep, and then. Sunday night, I'm on the go again, and then obviously Riot Games LA, right? Then Amazon Seattle, yeah. So at that point, when I was at Seattle, I already work, live in many, many different cities, right? And after Amazon, after you know, we launched Luna. I learned everything about how to operationalize a business, how to run a cloud gaming platform. I got an opportunity at Dapper Labs.、Mm. So Dapper Labs, for people who don't know, they are blockchain unicorn company that was valued seven billion US dollar in 2022. They are the creator of NBA Top Shot, NFL All Day, and Crypto Kitty. I got the opportunity by referral. They were hiring a head of games.、Mm. I thought the blockchain and Web three crypto market was you know, full of a lot of innovation and capital and talent flowing in. It was a good time to join, so I took on the opportunity. I run their seven hundred million ecosystem fund. Mm. To invest in Web three gaming company, that was also a very unique experience for me because even though I had investment experience from Lehman Brother in stock market bond, which is mainly secondary market,、okay. I have operation experience from Riot Games, from Amazon, but that Dapper. This is the period where I started to get my hands into venture investing. Right. So how do we actually evaluate a company when They have no product, right? They are just in their pre-seed. They have five people. They have a concept. They have a PowerPoint. Well, how do you value them, right? How do you decide how much you want to invest?、Mm. So that's where I learn most about venture investing. Expand my network in the venture VC world to really learn what is this business about, and that complement really well with my investment experience for Lehman Brothers and also operating experience for Amazon and Riot Games. Right.、I、feel like with all. These different pieces of working experiences it kind of complete or fulfill my professional picture or experience into a very well-rounded one that、mm. I can look at investment, I can look at strategy, and I can also roll up my sleeve to operate. Right. So this was you joined Depper. This is also in Seattle. Yes, they are a company that based in Vancouver, Canada. Okay. But the company is fully remote. So back then, I work at home. But every month, I would travel to Vancouver and then go work at the office with my colleagues there. But there aren't that many people at the office. Most people work remote. Okay, so you joined in April of 2022. So this is several years after the Crypto Kitties phenomenon, right? Yes. I think it was maybe late 2017 when、yes. they launched and famously. Kind of broke as we were joking. 
with our new coin coming up kind of broke the Ethereum network at that yeah. time. It yeah. was an incredible thing. Yeah. So you joined several years after this mm -hmm. and were kind of just managing this fund that they had set up from this accumulation of wealth and success that they had in these kind of previous years. Is that yes. correct? Yes, exactly. So CryptoKitty is definitely successful, but the most lucrative product that they have is NBA Top Shop. Mm. Because that was the product where, well, because CryptoKitty back in 2017 was only an experiment for Dapper. Right. I didn't know whether or not there's going to be a strong demand. There's going to be in a market fit. It just exploded out of their expectation. So they didn't really have a strategy to monetize it. And so a lot of people bought it and then they traded a high price, but Dapper didn't completely reap the profit. Yeah, Those couldn't even really sustain it. <laughs> couldn't really sustain it, mm -hmm. right? Because it was just really an experiment. But NBA Top Shot was the product they, you know, from the get-go. Based on those based kind on of experiences. IP, yes, mm. we know the, the audience that we're targeting. And we know sports fans love to collect items. Right, these moments. Moments, you know, collectibles. So that's where Dapper really had their first bucket of gold. And to kind of use that to grow the company, extend different IP. NFL, right? And then UFC. Yes, UFC Strike. I UFC think. Strike, license it or collaborate with Concept Art House. And I think a couple of months ago, they announced they are doing a partnership with Disney. They okay. Oh, that's right. Disney Pin NFT. Right. Yeah. So okay. Dapper has a very clear strategy of leveraging IP to do NFT drop and then really draw the Web2 IP user into the Web3 world. Mm. So you were there for about a year and mm -hmm. you have left. Yes. Okay. Yes. I was there about a year. Uh, you know, things were great. I learned a lot, but I eventually decided to leave mainly due to family reason because my parents, I'm my younger brother. They're all in Taipei. I am the only one from my immediate family that lives in the U.S. So Back in the days, I would travel back to Taiwan every Christmas to spend time with my immediate family and friends. And now, you know, like many, many Chinese or Taiwanese, I guess, uh, ABC who work abroad, when your parents get older, you want to stay closer to them. You want to be able to travel back when they need you, when they, you know, become sick. And I've been seeing more and more stories like that around me. So I guess I just hit a point where I thought, oh... Yeah, maybe have to I be should. a good Taiwanese daughter. I have to be a good Shao Taiwanese. Sun. You have to be Xiao Sun. Uh, <laughs> and then I, I don't want to feel bad and regret, you know, if something happened. For I'm, sure. I'm just too far from my parents. Yeah, so I decided that I would not want another full-time job to work for other companies mm. anymore. Even though those experiences are amazing, it shaped me to who... I am what kind of professional, you know, woman that I am today. I want to have more flexibility and freedom in my life so that I can spend more time with my loved ones. So I decided to take on the role to run the investment for my family office. Okay. Because we have a family fund that over the years has been managed by outside professions. I see. Which is great. But now I want to come back and then really help to set up more structure mm. and process Operationalize it. it. Oper operationalize it. You know, you tell your interns to give you a six-page <laughs> report. Exactly. Tell them to give me like a six-pager. Exactly. What is the investment thesis so that I can approve? <laughs> <laughs> you know, really apply all the learning that I have at Amazon. I write uh, back to this family office. So right now I'm doing 
doing that full time oh, wow. investing, and you know we'll see how it goes. I, okay, I'm enjoying it at the moment, but then I don't know how long it will last. Maybe one day I'll get bored. You'll you get know? the itch again. Get the itch again. I'm gonna outsource it, and then I'm gonna go operate businesses again. Right. Exactly. Ooh, interesting. Okay, so we'll come back to that. I love this because you gave us a really nice kind of overview of your whole career. And you mentioned that you know you kind of started out in finance and trading and consulting these kind of more traditional kind of fields, but then you finally got that opportunity. I think seven years later, you know, you're kind of working for about seven years in this kind of field, and then were able to go into gaming. Yeah. Um, and you hinted that that was kind of your lifelong dream. Yes. So yes, can you tell a little bit more about that? Your early memories of gaming. How much of a gamer were you? What was your kind of childhood like with games? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. So I have always been closer with boys、mm. when I grew up.、So、all my best friends in elementary school, and even in kindergarten, are boys. So I, you know, usually just hang out with the boys and play video games with them. I remember in elementary school, <laughs> I had a best friend. We still kept in touch as a guy. We would sneak out of the school after lunch break when everyone was taking a nap, and then we'd go play a video game for thirty minutes, forty minutes, and sneak back. Oh wow! Classroom.、Uh, Where would you go play? At home, or were there like these kind of like you know in LA when I was growing up? It was during that time where we had PC bang. These、ah, kind of like LAN, you know, little、yeah, offices、yeah. with all these cheap computers, headsets,、yeah. and a lot of kids would ditch school and go to these <laughs> things and. And even kind of die because they were just playing, you know,、mm. for like twenty four hours without、yeah. drinking a sip of water. So yeah, yeah, similar, similar. Back、okay. then, when I was in elementary school, there weren't a lot of PC games. So back then, it was arcade games. Oh, okay. Remember those big machine arcade? Yeah, like, play, like Street, Street Fighter, Fighter Pac Man, of course, right? Or Tetris. Yes. Yeah. So basically, we'll sneak out and go to this arcade and play like thirty minutes of Street Fighter, Tetris, and then sneak back to the school, to the classroom, and then after school, you know, I'll tell my mom, "Oh, I'm gonna go to someone else's house to write homework." But instead, we just play like Nintendo, you know, <laughs> the whole night. And then I go back and, you know, the homework unfinished. So I grew up like that. I play mostly with boys, and then you know, I. Play video games with them, and somehow the passion for video game just stays. It never goes away. Even though when I grew up, I had many many different hobbies. Right, I played piano once. I played trumpet.、Uh, right, I played tennis. Right, there's piano tennis. Also, I was into volleyball. All these kind of just you know fizzle out. You know,、uh, over time,、But、video games only a hobby that just stay. Even when I was at BCG, crazy story. When I was at Boston Consulting Group, I work. Ah, I think I work eighty to ninety hours per week. Oh, that's a lot of hours.、That's、a lot of hours, and I travel every week. Oh wow! Okay. Fly between Hong Kong, those big cities, Shanghai, big cities. Well, maybe like seventy to ninety hours. I would like. <sighs> Travel with my PlayStation console in my carry-on luggage. This is like pre-Switch days, yeah, pre-Nintendo Switch. Pre-Nintendo Switch would have made it a lot easier, but yeah, yeah, the PlayStation console is huge. It's heavy, right? So I would put my PlayStation in my in your briefcase, in my briefcase, and carry-on, not the check-in. I put、right. it in a carry-on because I was worried that oh, someone might take it and steal my console if I check in. 
which was being paranoid because no one would really steal it. Right. Such a big, gigantic console. You're dealing with like million dollar BCG kind of accounts, but you're worried about your PlayStation. It's more my, valuable than yeah, my account. Exactly. It's more valuable than my you know million dollar project. Exactly. So I will carry it in my carry-on luggage and I will check in at the St. Ridges or the Meridian Shanghai and I will dock the PlayStation there and I just play it you know, during night. Oh, that's uh, funny. On some weekends, if I was too tired to travel back to Hong Kong, I would just stay in the hotel and play video game the whole weekend. And the hotel staff recognized me. So every time I check out, they were like, oh, Miss Shen, checking out. Should we keep the console in the storage until you're back next week? Said, yes, please. That's a great perk. <laughs> no way. So yeah, the hotel was great. They recognized me. They know that, oh, I'm going to store my PlayStation console until I come back next Monday morning. <laughs> That's VIP. That's boss level right there. That's VIP. <laughs> PlayStation docking and storage. So yeah, that's you know when I realized that oh actually my passion for video game never goes away. So take that back. I always wanted to work in a video game company, even huh. at college. When I graduated from college from NCCU, there weren't that many video game opportunity in Taiwan. To right. There were no video game programs, like yeah, I mean, no, university programs, exactly. I'm sure. There were none, right? So I couldn't get any job that is video game related when I graduated from college. And it was the same when I graduated from Columbia. I applied for Nintendo, I applied for Sega. None of them really hire MBA. Okay. It was not a thing, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Right. It's not like right out of an MBA program, yeah. they, they want you. No, 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 no. no that no. was Wall Street or... That was more Wall Street consultant PE, right? Exactly. Uh, so I couldn't get any video game job until, you know, when I was working at BCG. And then somehow BCG alumni was working at Riot. And oh. we met somehow through an event. And he was saying, oh, I'm hiring someone to manage the Southeast Asia publishing business for League of Legends. And back then, I am mostly a console gamer. I don't play a lot of PC game. When he told me my first reaction, oh, what was League of Legends? <laughs> I don't know what this game is because I mostly play console. Right. And then I started to learn about their business model. I started to meet the people and realized, wow, Actually, Riot has a lot of people diffuse the idea with the statement that Riot has the most talented video game producer or staff in the video game industry. Because mm. the founder, Mark and Brandon, they're just brilliant. Right. One of them is banker, one of them is consultant, graduated from USC. Exactly. And they attract a bunch of very talented people to really grow the business. So I had some study. I decided to join. When I joined Riot, it was 2000. I believe 14. And I remember the company back then when I joined was only a 500 people company, which is not small. Yeah, that sounds pretty big, actually. It sounds pretty big. But when I left, it was 2,000 people. Oh, wow. Yeah. So within four and a half years, it quadrupled. That's insane. Yeah. And the same goes with the game, the user base, right? So yeah. it was amazing, right, to see how Riot grow from a 500 people company to really like a 2000 multinational, you know, international big corporation, I would say, and operationalize the League of Legends game. Yeah. So you came in as the head of publishing for the Southeast Asia team. What was Riot's footprint in Asia at that time? When I joined, 
Riot was very strong already in China and Korea. When okay. I say strong, I mean they have the most user in the APAC region. And did they have those big tournaments already established? Not as big as the one in 2018, you know, or 22 as those tournament. But it was sizable. It was good already. Okay. Yeah, there will host League of Legends champion tournament. Probably will have, I would say, like 400, 500 viewer up to a thousand. And then obviously, you know, when I left, when they held the World Tournament at the football stadium in Korea, that was like you know, so ten thousand, you know, fifteen thousand yeah. viewer live. Yeah, so definitely witness a lot how Riot grows their game and also cultivate the IP. Because oh. Riot hold their IP very dearly, so they want to use the IP to create not only just game but you know, cinematic, comic books, merchandise, figurine to really use their IP in everyday's product to surround the core audience and to deepen the engagement. So what was one of kind of your most memorable successes or projects during that time working in the kind of Southeast Asia team? Ah, that's a good question. I would say the most memorable and successful project that we did that time was to work with the local PC cafe in Ooh, Southeast Asia. Okay. Like Philippine, Malaysia, Vietnam to establish a League of Legends PC cafe program locally. So what huh. that means is usually when you play League of Legends at home, you need to purchase the skin, which is the costume. Okay, so cost like avatar. Avatar. And so avatar is champion. So you need to purchase the avatar, the champion. But also their costume, avatar and the costume. We call it champion and the skin. Right. But when you go to the PC cafe, because they have a unique IP address, they have a unique login, you can go play at the PC cafe in Vietnam or Malaysia with all the champions, all the skin unlocked. So that gives people motivation to go out and play at the PC cafe, but not just play at home, right? Because if your home has a stable internet, right, you have a good gaming PC, which is usually not the case in Southeast Asia, you wouldn't feel a lot of incentive to go to PC cafe. But if you implement this program, yes, people would go. So I helped the team to implement the PC cafe program in selective PC cafe, mainly in Philippines and then uh, Vietnam back then. And we piloted it with, I believe, like 10 to 12 PC Cafe in each region. And it was really, really successful. Oh, wow. And I think that was my most memorable project because not only the project was successful, I also got to visit a lot of different local PC Cafe in the region, which is so different from, (laughs) you know, U.S. or the ones in Korea and Taiwan, which mostly are more developed. Right. And like very cozy, like a nice cafe. Right. Like LED lighting. Uh, just LED very high lighting, tech. Right. Like espresso machine. Right. And high end, uh, the leather chair. Um, but this is very Southeast Asia. This is very Southeast time. Asia. Okay. You know, just think about, you know, the GDP there and the income. Yes. Right? So it's a lot cheaper. So it's not really a fancy cafe, but I get to see and witness those, observe those firsthand and get to meet very passionate PC cafe owner or students, right? Just a lot of students don't even own a PC at home, don't even own a laptop and they will just save up money, go to the PC cafe and play. I think that was, you know, very great learning opportunity for me to really understand a very different region. 
That's so interesting. I mean, did you just go individually to these kind of PC cafes or were there some kind of chains? You know, they had like four or five shops and that way you can kind of scale, you know, this. Or were you really just going individually and picking like big cities and like the most famous PC cafes or how did this strategy work? Yeah, it's a good question. Back then, there weren't a lot of chains, PC cafe chains. I would say Southeast Asian market is very fragmented. Right. So in each city. These are just like mom and pop shops. Yeah, mom and pop shop. Each city, they'll probably have one or two that are sizable. Okay. But other than that, not really. Right. Uh, but we had a great local partner, which is Garina. Oh, Garina. Yeah. yeah. Well, back then, they are a League of Legends Southeast Asia local publishing partner. Okay. So they did a terrific job hosting us, take us to different PC cafe, the big ones, and then basically meet the owner and understand the challenges, talk to them. Okay, I see. And then from there, you pivoted from Southeast Asia back to Los Angeles, heading the strategy for North America Publishing. Yes, correct, correct. So what was this change like coming back to the States after (laughs) having these experiences in Southeast Asia? We already kind of mentioned these different culture shocks. It seems like your life and career have been a kind of series of different culture shocks. Yes, (laughs) yes. So going back to Los Angeles to run the strategy team, it's definitely very different from Southeast Asia. I realize how fortunate the employees or, you know, the consumer are in the U.S. because it's just such a developed country. You know, everything is so established and available and abundant, right? Right. Um, but you also kind of see very unique trade of consumer preference coming from the U.S. because it's a higher GDP, more developed country. So consumer are pickier about, you know, any detail of the game, about the spec or their equipment right very very in a way opinionated <laughs> right yeah yeah if, if, exactly if you make a lot of feedback a lot of feedback <laughs> if you just make one tiny change of champion skin the game you get attacked basically you get attacked the, the loyal gamer would go on reddit and then just like you know just tear just you apart tear you apart uh, <laughs> yeah so it's a it's a very different market interesting um yeah, it's just interesting to experience working directly with both Southeast Asia player and also U.S. player. Because when I was heading the North American strategy team, I worked with a very interesting company called Super Super League, League Gaming. Gaming. They run League of Legend tournament in movie theaters for high school students. Okay. So their motto is basically to rent out movie theaters for one night or two night and host tournament and invite 16 to 18 high school students team and have them compete with each other yeah that was also you know a very memorable experience of my time at the north america team because i get to really understand u.s high school culture and get right. to really work with a lot of teenagers who are so passionate about games have their family and school support them you know playing video game with the potential to become like an esports player yes right? which is just you know so different from southeast asia yeah, it also mentions kind of on your background is the UCI esports uh, as well. I think yeah. you had some kind of cooperation with them yes. as well. Yes, 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 yes. So back then, UCI has an esports center. 
Yeah, they have a whole program, a center. They have center. a whole program, a center. They want to cultivate UCI uh, esports athletes and players. Right. Yeah. With scholarships and everything. With scholarships. <laughs> uh, so we partner with them basically. It's funny that I had the experience implementing the PC Cafe program in Southeast Asia. So back in the US, in Los Angeles, they also want to do the same thing. So we partner with them and we provide a similar PC Cafe program to their esports center and then help provide coaching to their athlete or esports player at the campus. So okay. They have a League of Legends student club or right. esports club. Okay. So that was, yeah, also very interesting. I work with a lot of students back at that role, I realized. <laughs> huh. So what is the business side of that like? I mean, is this mostly kind of sponsorships or is this like licensing kind of deals? Or mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. can you tell a little bit about kind of the business, the business strategy for these kind of cooperations with esports at that time? Or PC Cafe. Or PC Cafes. Yeah, yeah. It depends on the PC Cafe that you work with. But the business model usually will be we will kind of license those PC cafe program to them and we get like a revenue share out of their time charge. Okay. That's one business model. But we also do have business model where instead of having revenue share on the time charge that you have, we basically charge a fixed fee. Okay. Like a monthly fee and then let you run the PC cafe program. Okay. So those are the two main model for the PC cafe. Now, for the Super League gaming, it's more of a licensing okay. situation, right? We'll license you the game, let you have the right to run it in the movie theater. And uh, you do all the operation, the ticketing, the sales. That's your business. We're just a licensor. Okay. Yeah. Makes it easier. Yeah. Make it easier. Yes. So then from there, from North America, another culture shock or <laughs> change, uh, maybe not a shock because you had actually kind of started out your career there, kind of shifting between these big cities. I think you are still based in Los Angeles, but you are head of esports initiatives, business development for the China team. Yes. And that sounds really interesting because, you know, they had some enormous leagues, especially at that time. That coincides, I think, with kind of the rise of China, right? Recently, China's faltering a lot, you know, kind of economically as well. Mm -hmm. But at that time, it was crazy. They were filling stadiums. There was a lot of money just being thrown around. You were really there kind of at that peak, right? Yes, yes. I was definitely at the peak. So this opportunity came to me when I was at North America team. The head of APAC came to me and said, hey, I really needed someone to spearhead this whole esports franchise project for us. And I know you're based in LA, but we need you to come to Shanghai and live. Wow. In the hotel for 10 months, help us to finish the Your project. PlayStation's already here, so. <laughs> yeah, your PlayStation's here already, or I'll buy you a new PlayStation. Exactly. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, wow, you know, working at eSports in China at a peak, it's such a rare opportunity. So I, you know, jumped on the opportunity, flew to Shanghai, stayed at the St. <laughs> Richard Shanghai for 10 months. No way. Yes. Is that on the Bund? Actually, no, no, no. It's at Jing'an District. Oh, okay. It's not in Pudong. No, no, okay. it's in Fuxi. It's at Jing'an District. Yeah, so I just flew over, you know, bought a couple of big luggages. All your consoles. Only one console. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're a loyal PlayStation girl. I am a loyal PlayStation Oh, really? Girl. Okay. Yeah, you know, and then I just stay at Shanghai for 10 months. And that project was just eye-opening because 
even though I speak Mandarin, I'm very immersive, obviously, in the Chinese culture. But that was my first time working day to day with truly, I would say, Chinese professional and company. Back at BCG, I did obviously work with a lot of Chinese clients in Shenzhen and Beijing, but I was more of an outside consultant. Right? Okay, so I right. will have my own. PowerPoint data analysis that I need to do and present it to the client, but I was never part of the client, you know, working on the same problem. Exactly, kind of day to day, really. Exactly, I'm not day to day, you know, sitting beside him solving the same problem. This experience is really me working with the right Shanghai colleagues, nine of them actually that I led and manage, and also partner with Tencent employees. Uh, yeah, who, huge company and huge a huge company, gaming company. Huge gaming company to to really get this esports franchise project going. So when we say esports franchise project, what does that mean? So basically, in a nutshell, Riot was on the path or aiming to transform esports league into traditional, typical sports league. Right. So what that means is that you have a league, which is like the NBA league, right? So we have a League of Legends league. But under the league, there are, you know, different city teams. teams and city teams, right? Just like Laker, right? Right. LA, Los Angeles, Los Boston, Angeles, Boston, Boston, Chicago. Chicago, yes. So Riot wanted to create just like a sports league for League of Legends. We have different teams in different city stadiums. And there's a revenue share component between the league and the team. And then every esports tournament that uh, Riot run, there will be sponsorship deal that Riot will bring in and there will be revenue sharing with the esports team. And we will also help the esports team to go to different cities, set up the stadium and provide guidance on how they build a stadium, how they engage the League of Legends fans and how they coach their esports player. Right. So this is basically the whole project. And then also another critical and controversial part of it is mm. because we need to control the quality of the team to elevate the quality of the matches. Right. So part of the esports franchise project that I led was to evaluate the existing team qualification. Oh, interesting. And kick out a few teams and then sell new slot, esports slot, franchise slot to new investor that Ooh, was also um, that must have been difficult difficult and fun <laughs> and exciting yes yes so that's also a big component of the project wow okay so how many times did you get threatened <laughs> oh wow uh, what are the worst things you saw that you can talk about because uh, it just sounds like you know even as you are saying, you know, it's really similar to, I mean, that was the strategy as mm -hmm. like a professional sports league, right? Yeah. And those sports leagues, as we know, have a lot of money, a lot of influence, and therefore, you know, people vying for their power or whatever. So, yeah. and especially in China at that time, it was kind of a wild, wild west <laughs> as well with yeah. a lot of money, a lot of power and having one of these teams, I'm sure, you know, is a very valuable kind of asset for yeah. these individual owners, maybe these billionaires or companies or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. I just imagine it being such an interesting time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is definitely interesting. So back then we had... 12 teams playing in League of Legends for the past four or five years already. And after a review of qualification, including their financial strength, their match history, 
the quality of the management team, we decided to kick out three teams. Wow. And obviously it was not an easy message to deliver, <laughs> but we didn't just kick them out, right? We kicked them out, but we also compensate them for their contribution for the past four years because they did contribute to growing the whole esports scene with Riot. Right. And we also provide, you know, kind of exit or opportunity to connect with other games, right? We make interesting to make like sure a severance that package. Women's severance package, right? We have like your next career coach right. <laughs> staying with you. Uh, but, you know, even with that, the esports team owner, they're still understandable, unhappy about it, but they never... It's interesting, they never really threatened me. And now that I think about it, I think that was the reason that they recruit me from the U.S. to oh. station here. Because all the esports team owners know that I don't live in China. Right. Yeah, they just see me as someone. the as US, an outsider. Outside, well, U.S. riot, <laughs> Los Angeles riot, basically, you know, put someone here to in charge of this project, kick out the team. And then after that, she will fight back. Right. <laughs> So now that I think about it, I think that's a reason, <laughs> one of the reasons that they want me to do the project. Come I in there and just clean up shop clean and, then up and then get leave. out. Because I don't really have a strong local tie with these esports owners. Right. And I remember clearly every time we were about to deliver the message to the esports owner, the Tencent people were like, be silent in the meeting and let me deliver the message. A oh, fan, you, you, you tell them. <laughs> Oh, wow. Then, remember, I was working with like four other guys and then they always let me deliver them as, I'm sorry, we decided that, um, you know, we should part ways. And the other guys was like, not saying anything. Oh, wow. So you actually had to say this in yes. these meetings. I actually had to say this, yes. That's scary. Uh, yeah, now that, I, now, that, now that I recall, okay, they did it on purpose. <laughs> these guys. But it, oh, was, it was wow. really fun. It was really fun. I, uh, you know, bond really well with the Tencent Esports team. You know, we collaborate. I brought in a very global and advanced esports or sports structure from uh -huh. the U.S., right? The perspective. But the Tencent people complemented very well because they just know a lot of local people. They live here. They grew up in Shanghai. Right. They know all the esports owner and then know the different dynamic between the esports team. Right. I remember when we started to negotiate and kick out team, not only we have to kick out team, that's difficult, but we also need to charge. I believe back then, yeah, it was eight figure US million dollar to the remaining esports team if you want to stay. It's like a franchise or licensing it's fee. It's like a franchise fee. We call it the franchise fee. Now, it is a hard pill to swallow for them because they have been playing for free. Right. In the league for the past four years. Like, what do you mean? Like now all of a sudden I need to pay you a figure US dollar to continue playing. <laughs> so it was also a very hard negotiation. But because, you know, I brought in the professional league structure idea and then I basically design all the league structure and the economic model and business model and then fee and then Tencent complemented in a way that they know all the dynamic between the esports team owner who likes what who's the clan leader who dislikes who so when we negotiate we really sat down and strategize different message the sequence who are the key leaders that we need to bring on first? Who, right. who should get more discount? Who should get less discount? And we just follow that strategy and, you know, successfully. Just implemented it. Implemented it successfully. 
collecting the franchise Eight. fee for nine, the remaining nine teams. Wow. So if these teams are paying you guys like an eight-figure U.S. dollar, not RMB, right? U.S. dollar. Franchise fee. For people who don't understand this world, where is their money coming from? How do they make so much money or why do they have enough money to be able to you know, continue this? As you were saying before, they were kind of playing for free, right? So how does this work kind of economically or business-wise? Yes, yes. So definitely... The game developer and publisher makes the most money mm. because they operate the lead. They set the rule of the game. If you think about it, it's like you have a basketball league, but you have a company who single-handedly decide all the rules of the basketball and control and change the basketball rule every year. <laughs> so that party, no doubt, is the most lucrative, most profitable entity. But after that, when it comes to the teams, Team, even though they don't make as much money as the game developer and publisher, but the top ones, if you can kind of win games, right, they get a lot of sponsorship, just like professional athlete, right? right. Baker gets a lot of sponsorship from the team, but also on the individual athlete level, the individual athlete gets sponsorship, and then the team will have a cut. Right. Right. So... The main revenue stream for the team are one sponsorship from the team or the individual player. And two, they also host their own events and tournament. Events can be online events, like play with the esports player, right? And then gift them on the streaming platform. Or it can be offline events, right? It's collect ticket, you come, right? See our professional athlete play games, play matches against each other. So those are the main channel they make revenue. And the third one, after we helped them to build City Stadium, they operate the stadium. Oh, okay. So the teams operate the stadiums. Yes, the team, the company, not by themselves. Usually they will partner with a local government, obviously, because it's a stadium. Right. Get support, sponsorship, and they will partner with different businesses. I'm partnering with movie theater. I'm partnering with big department stores, right? That's another way they kind of earn revenue, make ends meet. But have to admit that mostly only the top teams can stay profitable. Yeah. Uh, if you're not in the top, I would say 20% of the team, then it's probably harder and harder in the esports yeah, exactly. The economics sounds, I guess, very similar to kind of sports, right? In the States where I think a lot of these teams, they need a billionaire to come in and buy the team or a big company, for example. So did they have something similar where they had like naming rights for the stadiums sponsored by these kind of huge corporations or? Yes. Okay. Yes, they do. It's very similar. They basically just kind of use the same model, the naming right of the stadium, just like you know, I think Laker has their own stadium. They have their name. Exactly. Yes. Staples before and then crypto.com <laughs> these days. Crypto. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you didn't negotiate any of that side of things. <laughs> no. Basically, you guys just take your franchise fee and let them figure out the rest, yes. right? Yeah. Because for the local stadium, at the end of the day, they own it. They mean the team owner. They, exactly. they operationalize it. So for us, we just provide guidance. I'll have staff fly over to the city stadium, kind of just you know, give feedback and let them know, oh, is it fitting to run a tournament? What other equipment do you need, right? To really like have like a good engaging esports tournament experience in the stadium. But it's really the team that is in the driving scene when yeah. it comes to the city stadium. 
It's so crazy. It's so difficult, I think, for people to imagine or understand that this is just Riot Games, a company, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> a video game development company in the States and how successful that is to yeah. be able to have these kind of huge tournaments, these huge leagues all coming from this one IP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, is, it is amazing. It's an absolute crazy thing. Yeah, Riot is just, yeah, it's a fascinating company. It is a video game company, but in so many ways, it's also an amazing, I would not say professional, so I would say like a tech service company. Right, Because right, they right. operate the game as a live services. I know, yeah, right? it's, it's brilliant. The game as a live services, game oh, as a service. Goodness. So what about the esports? Because you, again, as I mentioned, you were there during the peak of esports when they were really filling up stadiums. Yes. Nowadays, it's not like it was in those heydays, yeah. right? And maybe it never will be. I'm curious about your thoughts about that as well, if it is a sustainable kind of thing going mm -hmm. forward in the future. But just kind of looking back on those times, did you you know, have a chance to actually go to those stadiums, these huge tournaments? What was the feeling like? You know, kind of your memories from the heyday of esports. Yeah, it was just the heyday. It was just really fun. It was really fun to go to the esports. <laughs> like a dream tournament. for a gamer. It was a dream for a gamer. It's like imagine like it's basically like going to a Coachella concert. Right. You go to an esports tournament, but but just otaku but just, nerds and like otaku gamers. Nerds, gamer, right? And instead of like watching Zed. You know, playing music, you're just watching a team playing League of Legends. Right. right. But the ambience, the lightning, the stage effect is very similar. Right. I remember the first, well, actually the second world championship that I attended, one championship series that I attended at League of Legends at Stable Center, they invited Zed. Oh, really? The opening. So Zed do the opening at Stable. Right. So it was like Coachella. It was like Coachella. And I went to the Staples Stadium. I was like, whoa, this is like crazy. It's like actually a Coachella. You, you get a music concert. <laughs> you get a music concert, right? And there's one we have Imagine Dragon do the opening. Oh, right. Yeah. It was kind of the theme song, right? For yeah, that tournament. Exactly, exactly. What was the name of that song? Heroes. Heroes, yes, Heroes, exactly. Yes, yes. Which is a perfect theme song. So Imagine Dragon. Zad did the opening last year, which I didn't go, but New Jeans did the opening. Oh, wow. Okay. So, Legend. Right. Big <laughs> Korean pop stars as well. Big Korean pop star. Uh, this one year, they got Jay Chow. Oh, really? Yeah. The king of Mando Pop. The king of Mando Pop. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. It's just like going to a concert, but you're just watching game instead of like listening to the music. Do you think that that's in the past now? And if so... Do you kind of envision some new and interesting ways that this can go? For esports? For esports, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was chatting with my friend about it just a couple of weeks ago. I think the market is definitely more realistic about how profitable esports market itself is. Right. Right. At the peak, many, many people believe that esports itself can be a sustainable, independent big industry right in and of itself in kind of, of self-sustaining self-sustaining you're not attached to any game right, right. so that's why so many esports team run multiple games at the same time yes in the u.s you have a cloud nine right ETS. dota as well i think and mm -hmm. yeah but now i think after so many experiments and so much money and investment going in people realize that it's hard actually to make esports a self-sustainable self-sufficient business and profitable when then detach from the game. Exactly. Right. It's coming so, back down to reality. 
coming back down to the reality. So I think now most people that I talk to recognize that esports is part of the game publishing business. Right. It's not a standalone business. It's a way to boost the game's engagement and monetization and fandom. Right. Right. But it's still attached to the game.、Mm-hmm. Right. I remember a big debate back in the days when I was at Riot working at Shanghai Projects. Is is esports a standalone business unit with its own PNL? Okay. Or it is a marketing expense. For League of Legends, right, right. Those are two very different positioning. Sure.、Uh, and back then, at the peak, obviously, people were saying that no, it's own PNL business. We can get Visa sponsorship. You know, we can get Nike sponsorship. Hell no, right? We make、mm. a lot of money.、Mm. But now, I think the sentiment has become more and more. No, it's just it's part of the game publishing marketing expense. Right. So speaking of that, you also were the head of business development and global publishing for League of Legends Wild Rift.、Mm. So the newest and latest kind of IP. How was that experience? It was also very interesting. So I was there prior to the game launch. Okay.、So、I was mainly in charge of negotiating the contract with the outsourced developer of that game. Oh, okay. So back then we have very unique setup where we have a Riot team. That is based in LA. I have a production team that is based in LA, and they're all Americans, right? Speak English, and we work with a Tencent studio. Oh, to develop the game in the back. Develop the game in the back. Oh, interesting. Tencent, no doubt, right? It's one of the best mobile game developer worldwide. At that time, did Tencent already buy? I mean, you know,、yes. come in and they already own right, and、okay. that's why we will pick by default Tencent Studio to work on this project. Of course. So Tencent has one of the biggest mobile game studio working on this project with the Riot people. So I was in charge of negotiating the development contract, right? How much development fee do we pay you? What's the revenue share, right? And then also the publishing agreement. So obviously this game we're gonna bring it to China and most likely gonna publish it first. So what is the publishing agreement? What's the revenue share, right? What is the role and responsibility split? And it's great because after I work, you know. In the North American region and in China, in Shanghai, on the esports. At that point, I'm already very well socialized and well educated about the culture between U.S. and China, right?、Mm. And then the different、mm. working preference between the two teams. Yeah, negotiation styles, the culture, everything. Culture, right? So that made I would not say very smooth, but that also made my job a lot easier because I really understand. Okay, this is how I need to talk to Tencent people. I know what they care about. Okay, this is how I need to talk to the Riot people. I know what they care about. That's interesting. What was that balance of power like, right? Because Tencent came in and bought Riot,、mm. but then you were on the Riot side negotiating with your bosses,、yeah. basically, and trying to figure out, you know, that business proposition. So yeah, yeah, yeah.、Sure. What a、sure. weird and interesting place for you to be. It is. Yeah, it does have a very unique and interesting power dynamic. It is definitely not easy because, on one hand, yeah, they're the boss. They're the main, only shareholder. Right. But at the same Time, like I said, Riot. It's a very, it's a creative business. You have a lot of exotic personality. So even when we are negotiating with Tencent, 
my team or my, my producer, they don't see Tencent as the shareholder boss. They right. Just see, the money people. Like, yeah, it's a, they're just the money people. They don't understand game. Like, they don't <laughs> they don't care about our gamer, right? Right. The right people are full of passion. So, all about the gamer or the most player focused company i want to do things right i don't care about what tencent said tencent are just like just an evil conglomerate who want to come in and grab money that's not what, I, what we care about right. right so there's a lot of conflict on that and i have to be in the middle kind of like mediate and so oh, no, that's not what they mean what they mean they also care about player value what they mean is when we meet the player value they want to make a little bit more money <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so definitely it's an interesting part of the dynamic. Not easy. A lot, a lot of communication on my side. But also uh, what makes it easier is that Tencent is a very good investor. Okay. Yeah. Despite all these negative sentiment or like stereotypical image about Chinese investor. Okay. Tencent actually is a really, really good investor, right? Huh. They are very, very hands off. Hands off. Hands off. Right. They are mostly only involved at the board level. Okay. So in our daily negotiation, how to operationalize the team? How do you want to monetize, right? They don't get really involved. People, Tencent people escalate to the VP, SVP and complain. But most of the time, it's like, no, we yeah, really that's not involved. on our desk. Like you take care of it. Yeah, so don't you, bother me with that. You talk to them. Like we're not gonna dictate and tell Riot what to do because at the end of the day, we're only involved on the board level. We care about the board level. You know, the bottom line. Of course. So in that case, they were very professional and that's awesome. I will also say that they're very very nice to Riot too, which mm. makes sense because League of Legends is the most successful game of yeah. all the Tencent PC game portfolio, right? Right. And, and they, they have a huge a, portfolio. Yeah, they have a huge portfolio. They become the most successful one for 10 years. Wow. That's it's so crazy. Easy. Yeah. So Tencent also give Riot a lot of room leeway because they have seen Riot, you know, succeed in different market and how profitable Riot is. So they understand the way that Riot runs their business makes sense. You know, even though it's very different than how they run Tencent. Right. And they respect that. So you know, Wave Tencent, you know, give us a lot of room. So makes it not as challenging. Oh, wow. In that aspect. So all this deep experience working at this executive level at Riot Games, handling a lot of operations, basically evangelizing League of Legends and supporting League of Legends, you never got involved in the game itself. Or did you? <laughs> because you said you're really a console girl. You're not really a PC gamer. Uh, yeah. Did you ever get pulled into the League of Legends world? Why or why not? No, no, no. I definitely play. Okay. <laughs> so I play, well, it's actually, you know, one of the key criteria to get to work at Riot is to actually play League of Legends well. Oh, interesting. They tested you. They tested you at the interview. Are, Are you, you serious? Yeah, wow. I'm serious. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, they have many different lives. They have like brown, silver, you know, platinum, diamond. You obviously don't need to play at the diamond level, but at interview state, you have to be very familiar with each of the champions. You have to have your own strategy, right? And you have to have a not very deep, but a good understanding of the game. What is it good? What is it not good? What's your viewpoint? So when I was interviewing at Riot, I basically played League of Legends, <laughs> I think every day for five, six hours just to study the game, make sure that That's I have something amazing. to say at the interview, even though typically I'm not a PC game. And it's a very competitive, fun game to play. And after that got into Riot, I play every day with my colleague. 
at least one game or two games. Okay. It's the main way for colleagues to bond. A lot of time after 5 p.m., 5.30, we'll go to the big PC cafe at Riot Campus and we play League of Legends for a game. We play like, you know, PUBG. Right. Payday, right. It's very common for Riot, we call it Rioter, to play games together afterward. Or even at lunch break. People don't even go to lunch. Let's just play game. That sounds like a pretty amazing place to work. Yes. If you love video games. Yes. It's it's basically a dream place to work. Oh my goodness. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I do. I play a lot. Back in the days. Huh. So Amazon, you mentioned that working with the, you know, head of business development, APAC for Luna. Mm -hmm. What were your kind of big takeaways from this Luna experience? Because this is a very different aspect of gaming, right? It's Amazon's platform. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So I think the biggest takeaway that I have or the learning that I have from Amazon, I talked about earlier. One is basically to learn firsthand how Amazon incubate and operationalize a business very fast. But the other thing that it gives me exposure to is to running a game business from a platform. Right. Because Riot, as big and successful as it is, it is still a game studio. Yeah, it's a development studio, right? Development studio. It's not a platform business. Mm -hmm. They only have one IP, which is League of Legends IP. Back then, when I was there, they only had one game. Now they have more games. They have Valorant, they have Wild Rift, right? They have the TFT, but it's still only one IP. Now, at Amazon, we're running a platform. So we're IP and game agnostic. As long as you're a good game and good IP, we want you to come to the platform. Right. So it gives me a lot of exposure to different game studio, meet with different personality, Japanese studio like Sega, Koei Tecmo, right? Square Enix, where I work very closely. I also, also work with EA, right? Also with Ubisoft, right? It just gives me exposure to a wide range of developers and game studio and kind of work with them, interact with them on how they view their games, Right, how they grow their game and audience and mm. how I negotiate with them. Right. So it's almost like a it's almost like a step up of negotiation compared to my riot time because my counterpart expand beyond Chinese esports team. It's global now. It's global now. It's it's Japanese. It's, it's whatever developer wants yeah, to publish their game exactly. in Japanese, the worldwide market. US, Europe, it's Korean, right? So that also elevate my exposure to different culture and also understanding how to negotiate business term mm. and contract with very, very different sizes of the company right. or region and culture of the company. What were some of the biggest challenges while you were working there at Luna? I think the biggest challenge is not just for Luna, but cloud gaming in general, it hasn't seen a very sizable and strong customer demand. Okay. I mean, the main value prop you think about for cloud gaming, it's like the Netflix of games. Yes, exactly. Why do people like Netflix so much? Well, because I can just open the app and stream it everywhere and go. I can watch it on the MRT. I can watch on the bus. I can watch it on the car. Probably not in the car, but (laughs) (laughs) I can go to the hotel and still watch it. Yes, right. So it's like game anytime, right? So mm-hmm. one main value prop is game anytime, anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then the second value prop is no download time. Right. You so can you just know, stream it, basically. Just stream it, right? So like when you watch Netflix, you don't have to wait 30 minutes for it to download. Exactly. You just download stream it, first. Yeah. Right? It's like five second, boom, you watch it. So just the same for press video. play. 
press play. Those are the two value prop. Now, those are good value prop, but the two value prop are not good enough for people to drop their console. Yes. And drop their PC and say, okay, I'm not going to buy PlayStation 5 or Xbox One now. I'm just going to play cloud gaming. No. Because those two value prop is just not attractive enough for people to drop their established and old habit. Yeah. yeah. If you love play on PlayStation already, if you love your mouse and keyboard, you know, your Razer well built PC that you spent right. $3,000 on it, why would you drop it and then play cloud? Right. Right. So there just isn't like a strong demand. And that's the biggest challenge for all the cloud gaming providers Stadia, Luna, uh, Steam. Steam don't have to, but GeForce now. NVIDIA is GeForce now. Okay. Steam. So it's still a challenge now. And we'll see. My view is that for all the platform shift in the video game industry, okay. you know, for early day, the PC to console, right? Even to mobile, it has to be in a way that content leads first. What it means is that for a platform to become popular and prominent, there needs to be content that designs specifically only for this platform. Okay. So what that means is mobile game will not took off if it weren't that many content and games that were designed for handheld devices and touchscreen, mm-hmm. right? And same with console, right? Console game wouldn't took off if it weren't that many games are specifically designed for, for those consoles. Console, living room, space experience. Right. In the couch, watch the dialogue, right? And that was the one thing that was lacking in cloud gaming mm. platform because all the content the game unported from PC, ported for console. So from a player perspective, I can play this game on console too. Why would I switch over to play on cloud? Right. When the value prop is not that attractive to me yet. It will only take off until a point where there are games that are designed specifically to use the cloud technology to design experience that you cannot get elsewhere. You cannot play this game on PC and console. You cannot get the same experience on PC and console. Then you will go to cloud and play. The market hasn't figured that piece out. I was going to say, yeah. Is there anyone who's working on that that you know about? There are many ideas floating around, but there hasn't been any successful execution. One of the big ideas that some developers were talking about is one of the powerful things about cloud technology. It's not constrained by hardware. Right. Right. So when it's not constrained by hardware, then you can potentially have a battle royale game, just like Fortnite game, right? Okay. But not limited to a hundred player. But you could have a thousand player join one battle royale tournament, join one Fortnite like game. That's really massively online. Yeah, really massive, <laughs> right. massive online uh, player that loading all these kind of uh, activities. So that was the idea that people were thinking, but haven't seen successful execution yet because the things that people could not figure out is why would a thousand player battle royale game fun? Right, exactly. How do you make that more exciting than a five on five? Exactly. Or more exciting than a hundred people play. Because a hundred people battle royale, it's a lot already. Exactly. That's a a lot of players. You have to kill (laughs) kill ninety-nine player, right? Right. So a thousand player. Hmm. Or a million. Like or a million. Is that really what we want or need? Yeah, exactly. Right. And it could be. We just need that developer to really design the right experience. And it hasn't happened yet. Okay. So I think that's a really nice shift into your kind of recent or last experience at Dapper, which is blockchain gaming, right? 
Yes, which is also a very controversial kind of nascent, you know, kind of market and industry mm. with a lot of naysayers and a lot of people really kind of, you know, believing in it. So yeah. what are your thoughts about blockchain gaming? I mean, you were there at the company that's at the forefront of that. Mm. Um, just some thoughts about kind of blockchain gaming now, the future of blockchain gaming. Is that a viable pathway? I know these are kind of huge questions, but what are your kind of thoughts about that? Yeah, so I joined Dapper Labs back then because I really believe in the notion of digital ownership. Our second or the, you know, upcoming two and third generation, right? They are going to own physical goods less and less. Mm. They're going to own digital goods. One more because they grew up with iPad, right? They grew Mm. up with phone. And because of that, I think the one main thing about blockchain where they advocate digital ownership means that you own this digital item, right? And then it's traceable, trackable, and public. Right. You own it and you can resell. You can do whatever you want with it, right? It's very appealing because Mm. you think about today, all the video games, you buy all these content, you buy this champion, you buy this skin, but you don't really own it. Because you don't really own anything, right? It sits in their game. So if Riot decide to shut down the game, which will not happen, but mm. you lose all the item because you don't own it. The developer owner is sitting on their server, right? right. At their AWS server. Now the idea that you own the game and then you can take it out of the game, you can sell it to other people, right? You can show off on your Twitter profile. It's very appealing. And that was one of the main reasons that I decided to join blockchain space because I want to see how this very high level vague philosophy can transcend into an actionable, profitable business idea. Right. Right. So that was a good, I think a good philosophy and a good value prop. But it has been challenging, especially starting last year when the market tanked because there hasn't been, even though it feels good to talk about digital ownership, Right. But there's a lot of executional details and problems that people haven't solved. Together with digital ownership, people talk about interoperability a lot. What that right. means is that you can take the item from game A because you own it, take it out, and then you can take it to game B and use it. Exactly. Now, it sounds fascinating as a gamer. I want to do that. I want to do that. But right. when it comes to executional level... But exactly, how do we do that? How do we do that? Because every game is very different, right? So what kind of game will allow you to take your sword (laughs) from Zelda game to, I don't know, like Diablo? Exactly. To use it, right? Or World of Warcraft. Well, first of all, there are different games. So why would it even do that? And second of all, there are two different companies. Why would it allow that? There's a conflict of interest. Blizzard will never allow you to bring any item from Riot's game to their game because they want to sell you their item. Right? Mm-hmm. So if I allow you to bring Riot Games item into Blizzard's game, how did Blizzard make money? Yes, Everybody's exactly. Be half, right? So there's a question around, okay, what type of game are actually interoperable? Very, very few. Right. And then two, there are different wall gardens, right? Yeah. So why would any developer let you do that? Droppable their items, right? Because there's these practical challenges that cannot be solved. So the value prop of blockchain game become very questionable starting right. at the end of last year. 
the kind of original thesis, actually. Yes,、right? the original thesis, the strongest value prop, hasn't been seen to materialize. Right. Exactly. So that is, to me, the biggest challenge of blockchain game. It will still be the same in the future. So unless we really see, and maybe someone want to figure out a very very creative game developer, they figure out a way to actually one. Provide user digital ownership. They can sell. They can own. That part is easy. You can、mm-hmm. take it out and sell it on,、uh, you know, OpenSea. But then, two really figure out a way for them to use that in-game item elsewhere. Right. Either that's another game or another social platform, but not just a profile pic. Another、exactly. social platform that have use cases. Yes. I can actually use that item. Elsewhere, somewhere, maybe maybe it's an e-commerce platform. Maybe I take the item out and then I take that to the e-commerce platform and become I don't know a voucher. Right, right,、like、right, right, right. Until someone figure that out, I think there will always gonna be doubt and questions about the practicality of the blockchain game. Right. So overall, how are you feeling about Web three and、mm. the future of Web three?、Uh, maybe even aside only from gaming, right? That's just kind of overall, one aspect yeah, of yeah. it. But just Web three in general, what are your kind of thoughts or some exciting things possibly that you think might materialize or that you are seeing these days? Or are you kind of more pessimistic recently, coming back down to earth and seeing these, you know, kind of difficulties on a day to day level? How are your kind of thoughts right now as it is? I think overall blockchain, I am optimistic about DeFi. Okay. I see、uh, decentralized finance. Yeah, decentralized finance. I see decentralized finance, cryptocurrency, decentralized exchange as a liberating platform medium for a lot of people who want to invest, right? Who want to. Kind of whole currency, that whole value, right? And wouldn't just have inflation at two hundred percent, exactly, <laughs> right? In two three years, yeah, right. So in that way, I think it makes sense, right? I also believe that there should be some financial instrument that is not subject to government regulation or tax all the time, right? Right. Ah,、uh, so that I do believe. So DeFi, blockchain as a financial investment instrument, I do believe, and I see a very bullish. Future. Okay. I think I am a little bit more conservative, slightly pessimistic about blockchain game because I just haven't seen good use cases.、Mm-hmm. And until I see something that you know really like blew my mind, I will、right. always stay cautious about blockchain game. Okay. Finally, what are some of your favorite games? As a crazy gamer who's had this amazing life and career thus far, being really at the center of a lot of these kind of waves, we just kind of got off this last wave of Web three, and and you've been really kind of riding these waves with esports and these particular cloud gaming. Indi- cloud gaming, individual IPs. You've seen pretty much all of it in these recent days. So, what about yourself in terms of gaming consoles, PlayStation? What Are your go-to's and <laughs> what are your good memories? Yes, yes, I'm definitely a console gamer.、Uh, you know, like we talked about earlier, my favorite all-time game is definitely Witcher Three. Oh, Witcher Three. Okay.、Mm-hmm. So, for those who don't know Witcher Three, give us your little spiel, your little pitch about what makes Witcher Three so great, or why do you love it so much? Okay, okay. So <laughs> basically, Witcher Three, it's a I would say it's an action RPG game that was developed by a Nordic studio, and it talks about this legendary guy named Garrett. He's half human, half monster, 
And then he just go into the human world and slay monster. He's a monster hunter, basically. He okay. Slay, slay monster to make a living, and then rescue people, adopt like a human children with his girlfriend Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, it's based on a, a novel, and it just talk about Gerald's stories and basically intricate, you know, love triangle with a couple of different characters. Right. And I particularly like the game because of a couple of reasons. So one. Obviously, the storyline is amazing. Basically, all the relationship interaction between different character and all character has their own captivating story. But then, two, the game design is just shocking. <laughs> it's so well designed. The graphic, the micro expression of the character, mm, right? You can see the it details. On detail. You can see it on screen. And third, the most important one is the side mission in the game. So a lot of the RPG or ARPG that you. Play Play. Most people, all people, will complete the main mission, right? Right. But from the side quest, the side mission, people kind of dabble into it because not all the side mission are fun. But Witcher, their team spends so much energy, pulling their heart into crafting the story for the side mission. Uh. I completed all the side mission for Witcher Three, which is. Rare for me because usually when I play, I just go with the main mission, and then I want to complete it. I want to know the main story and the ending. Right, right. And because Witcher Three has many, many very enriched, touching side quests, really immerse me into that world that they created, and then feel like, oh, I, I really need to, you know, solve all the side quests and side mission because there's a lot of meaningful story behind these side mission, and I really need to. You're go just intrigued, like I need to know. I need to know. I need to solve. <laughs> <laughs> right so that i was just really impressed yeah huh yeah i was gonna kind of ask you what makes a good game but i'm getting a sense of it now for you personally last time we talked you also mentioned your love and deep love for final fantasy you also introduced me to a very famous game but i had not played it which is persona 5 as well um, this also has, you know, like a very kind of deep story. The story seems to be very important for you, especially, you know, yes. some people play games to kill people or to have some adrenaline rush or, you know, kind of to race and have speed. But it seems for you personally, the story is kind of paramount. Yes. Yeah. So the most important success criteria factor for a video game is engaging gameplay. Right. That's the number one, the most important thing. Just like when you watch a movie, why do you watch it? Because it's engaging and fun. Yeah, you don't want to stop it. You don't want to pause it. Exactly. So for engaging gameplay, that means different things for different people. Some people is killing monster, tons of monster and mission in dungeon. Mm -hmm. That's engaging. For some people, that's very competitive, very social, like League of Legends. Right. People keep playing it because it's so competitive. And every time it's different, I play with my friend. The social dynamic make it very unique every match right, mm -hmm. that I play. Other people value the story. So for me, I'm the third type. I'm the third bucket. I mainly look at the story because I consider video game escapism. The same reason why I like to read. Because when I read, I feel like I'm escaped from the real world. I enter another space. Either that's fictional or non-fictional, whatever it could be, right? I have the same, you know, kind of like belief or appeal to video game. Mm. Video game has the same appeal to me. Okay. Yeah. So it's about really the imagination, creativity, 
Yeah, it's the imagination, the creativity that I when I play video game, I can immerse myself into the game character, the game world. Right. right? I can listen to the music, I can watch the story, and I can be part of it and actually interact with it. Because when you read books, it's also very fun and engaging, but you cannot interact. Right. You right. Cannot Just influence. intellectually, maybe. But yeah, intellectually, but yes. you cannot interact with different character. You cannot make choices and influence direction. Right. Mm. The video game to me is just a big. Large interactive book that right. you interact, and then you don't know the ending. Your choice can influence the ending, right? And they have music, they have graphic. It's just a lot more engaging than book, but it's the same concept, escapism for me. Right. Okay. So, what about for young girls like you, kind of growing up these days, who might be interested in gaming in a career in gaming? Or other things like this, these kind of creative pursuits. What would you say to them? Do you have any advice? Do you have any kind of words of encouragement for these young, obviously boys or girls, but especially you know, as a woman, I think your story is super interesting because you know it's a very traditionally male-dominated industry. So for you to be able to reach the peaks that you've reached, I think it's very inspirational for these young girls. So what would you say to these young girls who are kind of like? A young fan. Yeah, I would say the most important thing to you know, choose a career path or your focus is to really be honest with your passion and follow it. I think that's the most important thing because when you are very aware of your passion and you follow through, that you will see good result out of it. Even though the path might not be as easy as you thought, but mm. your passion will kind of make you persistent and will help you and encourage you during difficult time. At least that's what I feel during my career. Mm. No matter how challenged it is, you know, even at Riot Games, at Amazon. Because I understand that video game is my passion. This is the industry that I want to be in. So even though I'm the minority, <laughs> the less than fifteen percent employees in the video game industry, right? I still manage to kind of persist, keep doing it, and not look back because. I just want to stick to my passion, and once you understand this is your passion, and once you decide that this is the path that you will stick to, then you will find a group of like-minded women or other people in the same industry, in the same situation with you as you, and support each other. Yeah, so that's kind of how I managed my video game career specifically.、Mm. It's Not super friendly for women because it's eighty-seven percent male.、Uh, there are almost none, very very few female leadership. A lot less in finance and tech.、Mm -hmm. uh, but I have a group of I call it my wolf pack women. Okay, who are in video game industry, right? Who also are facing similar challenges, you know, as. The only female in the boardroom in this meeting, and we talk to each other. You know, we chat about personal stuff. We ask each other's advice about professional stuff, and we just advocate for each other all the time. So, any of those girls out there who are facing those doubts or maybe societal pressure not to follow those dreams, are you telling them to go for those dreams? Yes. Yes. I am telling you to <laughs> to follow your passion, and your passion should. Give you strength and then lead you to your dream. Right. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for you know allowing us. I mean, immersing us in your story and your game and your dreams and this amazing life of ups and downs, really like a video game itself. Right. 
with all these side quests, culture shocks, and this musical background. It's a really amazing story. And, you know, it's really amazing for us to be able to hear the details, the ins and outs of not only the business, but the dreams and the hopes, the challenges, but also some of those prospects in the future. So thank you so much for sharing those things so openly, so deeply. And I think it's a really inspirational for these, like we said, not only young girls, but any young people who are trying to figure out their way in life and, <laughs> you know, as they're playing this role, right. And trying to figure out their path. So it's really wonderful to hear. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. I think it's important that I you know, share the story more, especially not just for, you know, younger women, younger professional, but also I think for anyone who, you know, come from one culture and aspire to work in a more global, diversified places, right? Or you aspire to be, or you're right now having challenge navigating those environment. I think it's important to share and tell people that, you know, people have done it, people have success, so you can do it too. Right. And there's other people out there who, you know, you can really meet and talk to and develop your own clan, your wolf pack, your wolf, wolf pack. pack. Exactly. Yes. With Mocha and Truffle. Well, Mocha and Truffle, they're their own wolf pack now. Exactly. <laughs> Find them. The drop is coming soon. We're working on it. We'll, we'll tease you all. <laughs> we'll tease you. We'll, we'll, we'll do like a pre-drop party. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Thank you again so much for coming in here. You're always welcome. We look forward to, you know, seeing you back. We know you're all over the world. You'll be going back to the States, but your home is also here in Taipei and also here at Firelight. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you everyone for listening. We wish everyone a wonderful day. A final fantasy. Bye-bye.